0: This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're wrapping up chapter 18. We've all been hurt by someone we loved. We've all been caught by surprise when someone we consider an ally turned on us or opposed us. What comes next reveals our human nature, our sin nature, because our natural tendency is to mark down the offense, to tell others about our hurt, and to nurture it until it becomes a monument to the occasion. Jesus has set a higher standard. We, after all, offended God from the start, and we, after all, have been offered forgiveness for a debt we can't pay. So why can't we extend forgiveness like that to others? My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre.
1: So, so far in our study of the prescriptions of the Majestic Savior, we looked at greatness according to His value system, relational care according to that system, restoration according to that system, and now we're going to talk about reconciliation according to His value system. So follow along with me. We're going to read Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, and we will understand reconciliation that he expects from us, how to do that. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I still forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his master commanded that he be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had and repayment be made. So that slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the master of that slave felt compassion, and he released him and forgave him the debt. Well, that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, singing, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he would pay back what was owed So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to the master, all that had happened. Then summoning him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you also not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his master moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was hold him. His heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And church, here is the standard of reconciliation that Jesus expects from you and from me. If we claim to be followers of Christ, if we claim to be followers of Christ and we live like he lives, we do what he wants us to do, we become the people he wants us to become. And forgiveness is a part of that. Now, all of us struggle with forgiveness. But we will talk about here two virtues in the matter of reconciliation according to the value system that Jesus presents here. The first one is the regularity of forgiveness, verses 21 through 22. Now, Jesus just explained the process of restoration through church discipline here to the disciples. And Peter wanted to clarify in his mind the rabbinical standard of reconciliation, the pharisaical system of reconciliation. And that tradition of that time based on misapplication of Old Testament passages. Remember, the Pharisees were all about misapplying the Old Testament. That's why Jesus had to tell them in the Sermon on the Mount, you heard that it was said, meaning you heard the wrong teaching concerning the Bible. But I say to you, and then he brings them right back to the right teaching. So based on misapplications of some Old Testament passages, the rabbinical system, the pharisaical system, allowed for a three-strike rule of forgiveness. In other words, I will forgive you three times. But boy, if you mess up a fourth time, that's it. The relationship is over. There is no more friendship at this point. And needless to say, such a system promoted what, church? Record-keeping. So you keep track of the offenses against you. And boy, what a convoluted system when you try to keep track of how many times people would offend you and then you would say, well, you're up to strike two, buddy. You only got one more shot. But this system of scorekeeping is the exact opposite of true love, the exact opposite of the standard that God expects from us. Because Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, we do not keep a file of offenses against us no matter how often the person offends you. You're not supposed to keep a file a lot of uh, what we like to do, and I've been guilty of that too, and I'm sure you have too. We retrieve those offenses when it's convenient for us, right, husband and wife? And then you say, well, remember, 20 years ago you did that, 30 years ago. But wait a minute, true love does not take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, forgiveness must be a part of our lives. Now. Peter, again, remembering that Jesus had commanded surpassing righteousness, remembering the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not make it to the kingdom of heaven. So Peter obviously remembered that, and that is why he proposed to Jesus a very generous system of forgiveness, twice the amount that the rabbinical system allows, plus one more. So he says to Jesus Christ, Are we talking about seven times here? I know you demand surpassing righteousness. The rabbinical system is three times. So what I'm proposing here, Jesus, is how about seven times? So if my brother sins against me, twice the amount, plus one, isn't that magnanimous? Isn't that gracious, Lord? But church, although we don't call it a rabbinical system, we operate by something very similar here. We say, well, I will forgive offenses against me up to a certain limit. Anything beyond that, I am not forgiving. Many people also limit forgiveness based on sin gravity, which we rank arbitrarily, generally based on upbringing, past trauma, and even culture. For example, some people will forgive verbal insults, but not lies. Others will forgive lies, but not neglect or abandonment. And these are all man-made systems that contradict the divine standard, have nothing to do with what God expects from us. So we need to learn the right standard. We need to learn his value system rather than operating by the system of the world. And according to that system, church, the biblical system, here's something I want you to know. No sin, no sin ever committed against you is unforgivable. Did you know that? There's only one unpardonable sin that the Bible talks about, and that sin can never be committed against people. The unpardonable sin can only be committed against God. And for that reason, no sin against you, no offense against you, as horrendous as that may have been, puts the transgressor beyond forgiveness. Christ's sacrifice on the cross provides sufficient coverage for every sin ever committed against you, every sin that people will ever commit against you. Why do I say that? Because John the Baptist says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away The sin of the world. And John the Apostle writes that he, meaning Christ, himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So in other words, whatever offense that was committed against you, no matter the frequency of that offense, is forgivable. Verse 22. Here is the response. When, when Peter presents what he believes is the great, high-standard system of forgiveness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes, Jesus answers, I do not say up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, it is possible that Jesus' answer here refers to the story of Lamech. You remember that guy from the book of Genesis, chapter 4? The reason Jesus is referring to this story, perhaps, if he's got that story in mind, is to indicate to Peter that there is no vindication That is part of the reconciliation according to his value system. In other words, vengeance has no place In reconciliation according to my value system, Jesus is telling him. And again, church, how do we know that? Because Paul says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, verse 19. In other words, we have no business trying to force revenge, trying to force vindication. Let God vindicate you. Your job, my job is to forgive 70 times 7, which is a figure of speech. We'll get to that in a moment here. In other words, An unlimited amount of forgiveness. Why? Because no sin ever committed against you is unforgivable. You have been forgiven much. Therefore, you must grant that same forgiveness to others. Now, Jesus is playing with words here, playing with the words of Peter, and he's using a hyperbole. Remember that? We talked about this figure of speech, this literary device, a hyperbole, when we use an exaggerated number to indicate infinity or or to indicate an incredibly high amount Or in this case, the non-limit of forgiveness. So 70 times 7 must not be understood as a literal allocation. I hope you understand that. Because this is a figure of speech meant to describe the absolute supremacy of God's standard over a man-made or any man-made system of forgiveness. In other words, the rabbinical teaching says three times. Peter is offering seven times. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We multiply that by infinity. You forgive as often as somebody sins against you. That is why he's saying up to 70 times 7. Again, and this is a figure of speech. Let me remind you that we use figures of speech. We use hyperboles all the time. See what I just did that? (laughs) I haven't seen you in ages. I've told you this a million times. These are all hyperboles, figures of speech. Jesus is doing the same thing. So the lesson for us is very clear, church. Do not keep score. Don't file offenses against you for convenient retrieval in an argument or to justify bitterness or to justify self-pity or a victim complex and say, oh, everybody sins against me. I'm the victim of the world. No, no, burn that file cabinet. Forgive your offender as often as he or she sins against you regardless of the type of offense. But did you know that forgiveness does not come naturally for us? You will never accidentally feel like forgiving someone. It's got to take a divine intervention in your life and in mine. And because of that, Jesus provides the perfect example. He provides the perfect standard. We must look at his life. And we have several examples in the life of Christ. I'll give you a couple. In the time of Jesus... Some very religious folks came and brought to Jesus an adulterous woman. some A woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And what does the law say? She must be stoned. Adultery was punishable by death during that time. And so they brought her to Jesus Christ to say, well, what is he going to do now? Now, she sinned against her husband, of course, but primarily... She sinned against God. And by the way, every sin ever committed against anybody is primarily, first and foremost, an offense against God. So every time someone sins against you, that person has to settle accounts with God first. That person is sinning against God, and that was the case with this adulterous woman here. She sinned against her family. She burned her reputation. She was caught in the very act that they brought her to Jesus Christ. By the way, he was, as the God-man, primarily the offended party here. And what does he do, church? He told the guys, well, if you have no sin, cast the first stone. And to her, he said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Church, that is spiritual virtue at the highest level. That is the type of virtue we must duplicate. If we are to be imitators of Christ, like Paul says, be my imitator as I am an imitator of Christ. So next time someone sins against you, you forgive that person in your heart and you say, sin no more. Yeah, please don't do that again. Here's a more specific example. During his execution, Jesus prayed for his torturers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's in Luke 23, verse 34. So, church, if we claim affiliation with Christ, we should duplicate his excellence of character. Every time you receive an insult, you grant forgiveness immediately. No conditions attached. You understand that? You issue forgiveness in your heart immediately. You may or may not have the opportunity to tell that person that you forgive him or her. But in your heart, you forgive that person because this is what Jesus says. If you don't forgive your offender in your heart, my father will do this to you. So this is serious business. Forgiving is between you and God. If you have the opportunity to articulate that forgiveness to your offender, you do so, but you may not have an opportunity to do that. But you forgive immediately. You forgive unconditionally, 70 times 7, and a million times more. And when you do that, when you forgive someone, as often as that person sins against you, God rewards you with an ability to focus on the good memories of that relationship. Have you experienced that? When you forgive that person, God will reward you, first of all, with a clean conscience and with the ability to keep the good memories rather than the painful words or the proverbial knife in the back. Now, you're listening to this sermon, and you are thinking of someone who hurt you, and that is by divine design. God is exposing that wound in your heart in order to heal it. Don't resist that process. Decide to forgive Admit you cannot do it on your own, that you need divine enablement in order to do that and allow God to perform heart surgery in you. Now, sometime today, I encourage you to take inventory of the sweet conversations that you've had with your offender, the tender moments, the warm embrace, the gentle touch, the wise counsel, the pleasant trip, or perhaps even the tears you shed together. Whether you will see your offender ever again or not, ask God to help you remember him or her by these memories. That's what forgiveness does. God gives you the ability to focus on these memories rather than the painful ones if you've had a relationship at all with your offender. Now, if you don't have good memories of your offender, maybe you were a victim of a crime. What you do is you pray for his or her salvation and God may allow you both to meet in heaven one day where reconciliation will be forever and eternal, where you will create sweet memories together. But the other virtue I want to talk to you about, the first one is the regularity of forgiveness. In other words, you forgive as often as necessary, as often as someone sins against you, no matter the type of offense against you. But the second one, according to this passage here, I want you to see the nobility of forgiveness because you will demonstrate nobility of character at the highest level when you forgive. Why? Because you are imitating your Father who is in heaven. And here's a parable to prove it. So when you extend forgiveness to someone whether you think that person deserves your forgiveness or not, you are demonstrating nobility of character, divine character, Christ-like character. And when we look at the, uh, the parable that Jesus presents here, two lessons emerge very clearly. I want you to see the first one in verses 23 through 27, and that is that Jesus demonstrates the perfect standard. Now, a few months ago, we studied the parables of the kingdom, and what we verified is that parables encourage reflection, careful study, the immediate meaning of the parable is not necessarily right there on the surface, you need to read it more and more, you need to study, reflect, parables are fictitious stories, not fantasy, but they pour the proverbial concrete into abstract ideas, so what Jesus is doing here, he's demonstrating how forgiveness at this level is to be demonstrated, and he sets the standard, and one of the features of this story here is a king, he wished to collect a debt from a worker, now, a laborer in those days would take 15 years to earn one talent. That's the currency of the time. The worker in this story here owed an unpayable debt to his master here because it would take him 150,000 years to earn 10,000 talents. That's the point. Another hyperbole possibly here. What Jesus is trying to, uh, or he's trying, no, he, what he is demonstrating here to his disciples is this, this man owed an unpayable debt to his master, and he puts it in terms that they would understand in their reality. So imagine you, you owe a debt of maybe 10 billion dollars. That's an unpaid, you would never earn enough money to pay a debt like this. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. But to recover at least portion of the amount owed him, this fictitious king would sell the bankrupt worker and his family into slavery. But then the laborer made a promise that they both knew he couldn't keep. It was an impossibility. He said, oh, please have mercy. That's desperation talking here. Please have mercy with me. I'll pay you everything. Everybody knew that that's an impossibility. You cannot pay that unpayable debt. And shockingly, that master wrote off the debt. That master forgave the unpayable debt. No strings attached, no conditions. You may go free. So that laborer, that worker received an unimaginable amount of grace. Keep that in mind. To put things in perspective, $7.5 billion in today's money. Now, Jesus had the attention of Matthew and Judas Iscariot at this time, I guarantee you. Because these two handled money. Matthew was a former tax collector. Judas Iscariot was the treasurer of the group. It was a thief, the Bible says. But all the disciples, by this time, they were familiar with parables. They understood, finally, the dimension of divine forgiveness. Let's understand that same thing. Let's understand the dimensions of divine forgiveness. You and I are like that laborer here. We owe God an unpayable debt. We can never settle accounts with God because that happened when Adam sinned in the garden, according to Genesis 3. We all remember that story. We were all in Adam in seed form in his loins. And since that day, human beings have been trying to make up And making bogus promises to God, just like that worker was making a bogus promise to the master. And we try to convince God, we assure him that, God, I promise my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds at the end of my life. Lord, I promise I'll be good enough. I'll promise I'll quit swearing, I'll quit smoking, I'll quit drinking, whatever it is, Lord. I'll I'll turn a leaf over. I'll go to church every Sunday, Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll pay $20 to Live Aid or whatever the case is. I'll send money to charities, Lord. But please, let me repay you what I owe you. And that is foolishness, church, because we owe an unpayable debt to God. We can never do that. We insist on settling accounts with Him, but we have insufficient funds. We will never have enough good works, good deeds to make it to heaven because the requirement is perfection. And you and I already blew it. Church, you and I shared the guilt of Adam. We owe God an unpayable debt. The good news is that we don't have to work as a slave for eternity in order to repay that debt. We could never accomplish that. The day you came to faith in Christ, God looked at that collection notice and saw the words, It is finished! John 19 verse 30, when Jesus Christ cried out on that cross, it is finished, tetelestai, the Greek term that says paid in full, God the Father looked at that record and he said, I accept that, that is acceptable to me, that's the blood of my son, that's the innocent dying for the guilty, therefore the debt is settled. And that is the dimensions of divine forgiveness for you and for me, no matter what you have done in the past, Christ took that payment for you on your behalf, on that cross. At the moment you said yes to Jesus Christ, your interest in heaven was guaranteed, not because of any merit on your part, but because you are on the receiving end of a tremendous amount of grace, unimaginable grace. You deserve condemnation forever, like I do, to spend eternity in hell because we defrauded the Creator. But He acted in tremendous grace and offered the free gift of eternal life. If you have never appropriated that gift, which you can only do by grace through faith, you have this unpayable debt against your record. Come to Jesus Christ today, and he will wipe away your record clean in the heavenly courts. Repent, turn from your sin, and be saved. That is exactly what that parable is talking about here. The dimensions of divine forgiveness for undeserving sinners like you and me. So Jesus demonstrates the perfect standard of reconciliation by pointing to what he's about to do in this case here in the cross. But also in verses 28 through 35, the second lesson that emerges very clearly here is that Jesus denounces the perilous substandard. According to this parable, refusal to forgive others does not represent the heart of the good king. And furthermore... When you cannot forgive someone and when you refuse to forgive someone, it may be a symptom of an unregenerate heart, a heart that has not been saved, or a false believer, a nominal Christian, someone who does not understand the gravity of his or her own sin against God. See, when you understand your guilt before God and what he has forgiven you from, it should be no problem for you to forgive lesser offenses, a hurtful word, or betrayal, or abuse, or abandonment, or neglect, whatever the case is. Now look at the conclusion of the parable in verse 34. His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Let's be careful here not to misinterpret this. The conclusion of this parable does not mean, church, please understand it, this does not mean that a believer who refuses to forgive loses his salvation. Notice that the king is sending the evil or the wicked laborer here to the torturers, not to the executioners. Think about the torture of a guilty conscience. The torture of a joyless life, of depression caused by bitterness and resentment, and the anxiety that comes when you lack forgiveness, when you don't have a forgiving heart. Because of this, church, when you refuse to forgive someone, when you withhold forgiveness, you live in constant fear that forgiveness will be withheld from you. That's torture. And you know what? According to verse 35, church, who's responsible for that? God is. Jesus says, my heavenly father will do the same to you. In other words, if you are a believer in Christ and you've been holding on to a grudge for decades, for weeks or whatever, and you refuse to forgive, guess what? God is sending you to the torture chamber until you realize, okay, I'm miserable. I need to heal. I need to remove myself from this situation. So God allows this to happen in our lives in order for us to heal In order for us to imitate him and issue forgiveness and grant forgiveness. But you know the worst part of this torture is? The worst part of this torment? We talked about the torture of a guilty conscience, a joyless existence, depression, bad relationships, loneliness, negativity, and all of that. But you know the worst part of this is, according to verse 35? It's an interrupted fellowship with the Father. Because although you will not lose your salvation... When you refuse to forgive, you are placing yourself automatically in a place of interrupted fellowship with your father. Because Jesus says, remember in the beginning, in the Sermon on the Mount, unless you reconcile or at least be willing to reconcile with your brother or sister in Christ, don't you dare come and worship me. That's what he says. So my dear friend, if you've been living in a proverbial torture chamber today, you are wallowing in the filth of bitterness, self-pity, and resentment. I have good news. Your church family is here to help you take the garbage out so you can breathe the fresh air of forgiveness, reconciliation, and a restored fellowship with the one who has forgiven you an unpayable debt.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it, or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth With Grace.